Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. So we're in this series at the moment, uh, working our way through Paul's magnificent letter to the Ephesian church. And really we're looking at what it has to teach us about God's plan for the church. And what we're going to be seeing today is that God intends for us together to be a reconciled community. It's like in the church, in this community, we get the opportunity, the resources, and the power that enables us to relate with people who are deeply different to us. That's the opportunity that the church provides. The church is this glorious place where people can live in unity with others that they wouldn't normally get along with. In fact, our hearts are changed in such a deeply profound and dramatic way that not only can we deal inside the church with people who ordinarily would never usually have anything to do with, but even outside the church, we actually have the resources for reaching out and embracing people who are deeply, deeply different from us. And really, this passage that Patty's just read to us shows us three crucially important things that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has already done to make all of this possible. Here they are. The gospel, number one, creates a supernatural community. Secondly, the gospel does this through spiritual heart surgery, and believing that's going to be taking place for at least some of us, hopefully all of us in the room today, so get ready for that. And then thirdly, this works itself out in a radical new identity. We're going to get a vision of what that looks like for us as a church here in Birmingham. Let's start with the supernatural community that the gospel makes possible. Right at the end of the passage, in the verses that you read on the screen a little earlier, verses 19 through to 22, Paul gives us not one, not two, but three images or pictures or metaphors that describe God's design for the church. First of all, not if you noticed it, he says that we are citizens along with all of God's people, which basically means that Yet you have an earthly citizenship, so you might be a citizen of the UK or the United States or India or China. You're citizens of a particular country. But if you're a Christian, you have another citizenship that supersedes all of that. As Paul says over the page in Philippians 3 verse 20, we are citizens of heaven. Paul then goes on secondly to say we're not just citizens, we're also members of his family. It's like when we become Christians, we are adopted. God isn't merely our boss or simply our king. He's our father. That means we are brought into a family with a whole bunch of other people who have God as their father. So we now have a whole new bunch of brothers and sisters. We're citizens, we're family, 
And then thirdly, Paul goes even further than that and said the church is also like a whole building joined together and rising to become a holy temple for the Lord. We're like living stones or living building blocks and God inhabits us the way his glory inhabited the ancient temple back in the Old Testament. Now, just by way of a very swift aside, I think it's worth noticing here that each of these images or pictures becomes more and more relationally intense as they go along. It's like a king lives in the same country as his citizen, so there is a degree of proximity. Whereas if we take it a stage further, a father lives in the same home with his children. But in the temple imagery, God actually indwells you. He, he comes right into you. It's not just that he lives near you, he lives in you. And I think a similar thing happens relationally with the others around us in the church. There's a commonality that comes from being citizens together. Moving on a stage, though, brothers and sisters in a family, well, they have, at least potentially, a much tighter relationship. But if you think about it, when it comes to the idea of being a building, if Christians are like the blocks or the bricks in the building, they are cemented together. Really, I, I don't know how much closer you could get than that. It's like each of these images speaks of the absolute relational bonds that all Christians have with one another. Now, the basis or the foundation for all of this is found tucked away in verse 18 here. It says this, Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. The Spirit of God not only unites you to Christ, but also unites you to everyone else who's united to Christ. Paul's saying that every other Christian on the face of the earth, no matter how different they are to you temperamentally, racially, educationally, culturally, you have with that other person an infinitely deep spiritual bond. This is the supernatural community that the Holy Spirit makes the church capable of being. We are co-citizens. We're a family. We're a holy temple cemented together, inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Which is all good in theory. Here's the challenge. Are we living this out? Are we acting as though this is true? Let's say for argument's sake, you're a Christian. And perhaps you show up on a Sunday morning uh, two or three times a month and you come and hope you, you get a, a shed load of inspiration. You, you think of yourself as a regular attender of Church Central and you do a couple of things 
here or there. Perhaps you're on one of the serving teams. Uh, you might make it along to community group every now and again. All well and good. But is that the kind of relationship that Paul is describing here in these three images? Let's just take the image of the family. One of the things you probably know about families is that your immediate family members know all about your faults and your flaws. They've seen them, you can't hide from them, and probably they're very happy to tell you about them on regular occasions. And for the family to function in a healthy way, you've got to address those things and work them out together in your family relationships. Now to that end, Hebrews 3 verse 13, speaking to Christians like, like us, says, exhort one another. And the word exhort, it's a pretty strong word, means to counsel or to argue or to confront even. Exhort one another daily so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. I think there are at least a couple of assumptions in that verse. First assumption is that sin is pretty deceitful. That your, your worst flaws are kind of hidden from you. It's like you're in denial of them. You, you're blind to them, you just can't see them. The second assumption is that you live in relationship with other Christians so deep they're at brother-sister level. You have other Christians in your life who can actually talk to you, not just about your big sins, the ones you're aware of and, and, and so on, but about the sins that are semi-hidden from you, that you're kind of in denial about. And the reason that they are able to have those conversations with you is, first of all, you've given them the right to speak the truth in love to you. It's not like they just wade in and uh, shoot from the hip without permission. You, you've given them the permission to, to speak to you about those things. But it's not just that they've been told about them. The implication is they are living in close enough proximity to you to be able to observe your flaws. It's like you're eating with them. You're serving alongside them. You're reading the Bible with them. You're praying with them. You're in and out of one another's houses. You're, you're in close enough Proximity. You're, you're living in community with other Christians so they can see it. And because you are family, it's like there's this obligation to work this out together in relationship. The question is, is that happening? The Holy Spirit can create supernatural community. We're capable of enjoying this. But are we living in the good of it? Well, if we're not fully enjoying this right now, but would kind of like to, maybe not the people addressing us, our, our secret hidden sins, maybe not quite that bit, but some of the other elements of family and community. But how does it happen? How is it possible for there to be this kind of bond between people who are so radically different. Well, moving on to our second point, 
it requires spiritual heart surgery. I think that's pretty much what the rest of this passage is mostly all about. If we're going to not just start getting along with people, but feel unified at a heart level with people who are deeply different from us culturally, racially, socially, Paul tells us that there's something that needs to be removed from our hearts. See if you can notice it in these verses. Verse 14 says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Then verse 16 says, Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our, here's this word again, hostility toward each other was put to death. It's as though there is this hostility or animosity in our hearts towards people who are different to us. Now why is that? What's the cause of that? Well, to answer that question, you've got to look at the example that Paul gives us here of the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Now, you may not know all the history of this, and there's a temptation you might blaze over at this point. Bear with me. Uh, this will become a little more relevant to each of us, I assure you. But if you know your Old Testament history, you'll know the Gentiles and the Jews, they were very often in conflict with one another. But Paul says that Jesus destroyed that wall of hostility between them. And we're told in verse 15 that he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulation. Now here's the thing. Was the law, with all of its commandments and regulations, a bad thing? No, it wasn't. In Deuteronomy, God says, the reason I'm giving you this law is so that you can be a light to the Gentiles. The reason the Jews were given all of these laws and regulations was to show the world a godly society, a society of love, justice, righteousness, holiness, and truth. God says to them, I want you to be a light to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles will see how you are living and be attracted to me. Your whole job is to attract the Gentiles by obeying the law. But that's not what happened, is it? What happened was that the Jews, because they had the law and the Gentiles didn't, they began to despise the Gentiles and viewed them as unclean. And of course the Gentiles, well they despised the Jews because the Jews were so proud and arrogant. And so the law, this wonderful thing, actually becomes the dividing wall of hostility. Now, here's why this is so important and actually so relevant for all of us. Here's the principle. The things that divide us are very often, not always, but very often, the good things about us. 
The law was like the pride and joy of the Jews. And that becomes a problem. You have something, I have something, that's our pride and joy, or your race has something that is its pride and joy. But here's the way the human heart tends to work. We take the the best things about ourselves, and we end up becoming proud of them, and then we use them to bolster our sense of self-esteem by despising anybody who doesn't have what we have. As C.S. Lewis puts it, people are not proud of being rich. They're proud of being richer than the next person. People are not so much proud of being beautiful or smart or talented. They're only proud of being more talented than the next person. It's like everybody has to have an identity that gives us both a sense of self, who we are, and a sense of worth, a sense of value. And the way we tend to get these things is comparatively. I don't just have a good career, but I've got a better career than you. We we, we take the things that give us our identity and bolster our sense of self-esteem by looking at people who don't have what we have And because they're different, we end up looking down at them. Let me try and give you an example of this. Let's take timekeeping as an illustration. A number of years ago, I took a wedding for an African couple in the church here. According to the invitation that went out to everyone, the wedding started at 2 p.m. At the point where the wedding was due to start, All of their white friends from the church were seated and ready. By 2.30, we were still waiting for the bride and groom and most of their family, some of whom actually didn't make it until the wedding was over. But but, but most of them, they they kind of drifted in over the next 45 minutes, after which we finally started the service. Now, there are all kinds of ways to test out our cultural differences. But one of them is the way a culture defines the point at which someone is late. In some cultures, I won't tell you which ones, you can work it out, after five minutes you're late. And uh, and you can tell that because you call it five minutes late. In some cultures, it's 15 minutes before you feel like you have to give an apology. In some cultures, it's an hour or two before you feel like you have to apologise. Some cultures, you might say, are more relational and event-oriented and not time-oriented. It just happens when it happens. But when everybody's there, then we do it. But when everyone's gone, well, that's the point, it's over. It's like some are more relationally oriented, others are much more time-oriented. But instead of each group saying, oh, the other group is different, that's not what tends to happen. You see, we end up assigning moral value to our differences. We don't just say the other group is different, we say the other group is worse. Because they're never punctual. They're just irresponsible. 
that, that they're insensitive to everybody else. We, we don't have all day. I mean, I expected it to be done by this time. And the other group, quite rightly, turn around and say, those kind of people who are kind of always looking at their watch, they're so cold. They're so unrelational. They're so unfriendly. In other words, instead of just saying, oh, we're different, we take it further and claim we are better. And we all do that, all of the time, about a whole range of different things. It's like the human heart is ordered or set up so that our strength ends up becoming a dividing wall of hostility. The human heart is ordered so that our identity operates comparatively through superiority to the different. We find people who are different and we look down at them. We despise them. And that's how we end up feeling good about ourselves. That's how it works. But we, we have to look down at the different. It's our way of shoring up our sense of self-worth. And that is why it's not just the law of God, but basically any good thing can become a dividing wall of hostility. Could be our generosity. I played off this side of the room against that side of the room earlier, and maybe kind of one side was feeling a little more superior and looking down on the other side because of generosity. It could be uh, because of the spiritual gifts you use. You look down on others who haven't got the same gifts. It, it could be because you have a heart of mercy and you care for others and you end up looking down on others who aren't like you. It could be your grasp of the Bible and you're a little snippy about people who haven't got the same kind of biblical knowledge as you. It could go deeper. It could be issues of race or gender or Politics. It could be more superficial things like the clothes you wear or the school you went to or the sports team you support. Even in the transition we're going through, kind of inviting kind of our brothers and sisters from Church Central West into Church Central South, there's the potential for this to play out. Like, this is the way we did things and it's better and you don't do things like this and you, why, why do you want to do it like this way? And we can take on a kind of posture of our way is better and your way is worse and it ends up with this dividing wall of hostility between us. But here's where the gospel comes in. The gospel does surgery on our hearts and cuts out the hostility that's lurking there in two decisive ways. First of all, the gospel humbles us. It humbles us. It tells us that both the near and the far, both the moral and the immoral, are lost. Both sets need to be reconciled to God and are therefore spiritually equal. Notice again how in verses 11 to 13, Paul talks about the Gentiles as being far away from God. He says, you used to be outsiders. You were living apart from Christ. You were excluded. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the law. They were living pretty immoral lives. They really were further from God. Whereas the Jews actually were closer to God. 
They did have the scriptures. They did know the law. They understood who God was. They knew his attributes. Yet here's what's so amazing here. How did God bring Jew and Gentile together? It says in verse 16, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. That is the gospel. That is the good news. The gospel is that a person needs to be reconciled to God. That there's hostility between God and a person, and peace has to be made between the two. And so the people who are far away and immoral, and the people who are near and more moral, both sets actually need to be reconciled to God. Both sets need the gospel. Both are lost and need to be saved. And so the first thing the gospel tells us is no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, we're not better than anybody else. We're all in the same boat. We're all lost. We're all in need of salvation. And so we have no right to ever look down on or feel superior to anybody. Wherever there is difference between two sets of people that can lead to this hostility or looking down on others, whether it's to do with race or gender or class or church background, the the gospel shines a light on that and it humbles us to the point of acknowledging actually we are equal together. One is not better than the other. Secondly, the gospel doesn't just humble us, it also affirms us. Why? Well, remember what it says in verse 16. On the cross, our hostility to one another was put to death. How could God put to death hostility on the cross? Well, as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Listen. On the cross, Jesus stood in our place and received what our sins deserve. God the Father treated him as we deserve so that when you believe in Jesus, God treats you as Jesus deserves. Now do you know what kind of affirmation that is? When you believe in Jesus, God now treats you as if you deserve everything that Jesus deserves. As if you are as beautiful, as courageous, as pure, as holy, as righteous as Jesus. God the Father looks at you right now, and if you believe in Jesus, he sees you as precious as his own dearly loved son. What does that do? Well, thirdly and finally, it gives you this radical new identity. Just let it sink in. In Christ, you have an identity that is not achieved. It's not something you've had to work really hard to get. No, it's a gift. It's received. An achieved identity 
is pretty fragile and it's incredibly insecure because it constantly is to build itself up through comparison and superiority over those who are different. But to have an identity that is a gift that's received, well, that leads to a whole new level of security. You see, it's not because of anything I do. It doesn't go up and down depending on my performance. It's a gift which cannot be taken away from me. And this doesn't just humble you so you can't feel superior to anybody else. No, it absolutely demolishes all grounds for hostility to other people. I mean, you're now way too affirmed to ever need to look down at anybody else ever again. Because you've received a new identity, the need for superiority to the different, well, that's completely gone. Your identity operates in a radically new way. And that is what it means to be a Christian. Where you might have previously looked at a different group of people from a different background to you and secretly despised them. When you think about what Jesus has done for you on the cross, it will destroy the hostility you have towards them. If it doesn't, I suggest you don't yet fully understand and know what he's done for you. You don't really understand or experience it yet. Now just to be clear, the things that previously gave you your identity, those things don't stop. So, for example, if you're an artist, you don't, the moment you become a Christian, stop being an artist. No, you simply become a Christian artist. Similarly, if you're Chinese, you don't stop being Chinese. No, you become a Chinese Christian. Or if you're African, you don't stop being African. No, you become an African Christian. All those other identity factors, those things that made you you, they're still there, but in some way they're just demoted a little. It's like when making money is no longer about an identity, it can be channeled in way more positive ways. Now you can give it away. Before you couldn't, you you had to have it because that's where your identity came from. Why? Because that's how you felt good about yourself. Or if you're white like me, being a Christian lifts me up out of my race and my culture so that I've got a little bit of distance from it. And from that distance, I'm able to be more critical of it in a way that I wasn't able to be before. I'm able to see some of the privilege, some of the superiority, some of the arrogance that I had that I didn't realise. I can listen to other people from other races kind of pointing out some of my blind spots and I'm not suddenly kind of defensive and trying to justify myself. No, I can listen, I can learn, I can receive correction, I can repent. I've also been involved in so many of those conversations just over the last year or two with people from different racial backgrounds and it has been so enlightening, so humbling, uh, shocking and frightening, but so healing as well. Uh, So as a church, we're we're on that journey. Uh, Still got some way to go, but we're on that journey. And I think God's doing something precious amongst us, knitting people together in different cultural and racial backgrounds. Now look, this radical new identity, if we get it, if we understand it, if we live out of it, it means we no longer look down on people who are different to us. 
we're too humbled and we're too affirmed to ever need to do that ever again. More than that, we can now use our differences to enrich, to encourage, to challenge, to build one another up. I mean, can you imagine being part of a community like that? That's God's design for the church. That's God's design for this church. And that's what we're to model in our relationships together. Now look, I'm coming to land, I promise. My main focus, really, in everything I've been sharing here, has been about how this plays out in our relationships together in this church community. If you think about it, this also has the power to transform the way we interact with the world around us. I mean, if our hearts have been changed and we're living out of our radical new identity in Christ, this frees us to not only better work together inside the church with people who are deeply different, but outside the church as well. I mean, if a man dying on the cross for his enemies, if a man breathing his last breath Praying for his enemies is at the very heart, the very centre of your life. If that is your fundamental core reality, then surely you're not going to exclude others or judge them or show prejudice to them. Quite the opposite. I mean, you reach out to people and embrace them despite their differences. As we've seen, Jesus gave himself, literally gave his life to destroy the hostility between human beings. And now, we're commissioned to go and do likewise. As this church, we're a reconciled community, and we have the unique ability and resources, the agents of peace and reconciliation in the world.